are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington. My research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Simon Dew, who is an assistant professor at the University of Washington. His research focuses on theoretical foundations of deep learning, representation learning, and reinforcement learning. Simon's PhD thesis is titled Gradient Descent for Non-Convex Problems in Modern Machine Learning, which he completed in 2019 at Carnegie Mellon University. We discuss his PhD work related to the theory of gradient descent for challenging, non-convex problems that we encounter in deep learning. We talk about the backstory behind the theoretical results on gradient descent that he proved in the thesis, connections with the neural tangent kernel and its significance in today's world of theory, his investigations into failure cases of gradient descent, and a lot more. Simon also gives some great practical advice on reading theory papers as well as advice for researchers in general. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesisreview. Your donations are important for covering the costs of running the show. So thanks to all of those who have contributed so far. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Simon Dew with Gradient Descent for Non-Convex Problems in Modern Machine Learning on the Thesis Review. In your thesis, you look into the theoretical side of machine learning and deep learning. So maybe just a high-level question to start. What do you see as the role of theory in deep learning research? Yeah, so in general, um, researchers or even practitioners want to learn um, the fundamental reason why a particular method works or not. Um, So that's, you know, even out of uh, human curiosity, you want to know uh, why something works. So the first reason is just, you know, human's curiosity and you know many people just want to know know why this works and also theory can give back to you know practitioner in many ways like after you have a good understanding of why a certain method work then you can better applying um you can better apply this method to your uh, problems like for example you know how to cure your parameters because you have some insight on how this uh, hyperparameters affect uh, the final result you desire. Um, also, based on the theory, you can also design some new methods for if you have some insight about your data, especially in machine learning problems. Um, you always have some data and you want to exploit the structure in the data. And if you understand your method well, then you can you know, tune your method to further exploit the structure in your data so that have a better um, result. Uh, as you desire. Um, 
Also, you know, we also develop some general theory, like um, you know, back to VC dimension or recently like deep learning kind of complexity uh, analysis. Uh, these methods are pretty abstract and general, but may shed light on the uh, designing new uh, or new class of methods that may be beyond deep learning or uh, current state of the art methods. So yeah, so generally uh, we want to understand why it works and can, uh, for proxy terms, uh, Siri can help you use your method and um, Siri also can um, help you design new class of methods. So in terms of the understanding, what are some ways that you gain an understanding from theory versus say just taking a purely empirical approach? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so for for theory, you really have a more abstract and rigorous uh, understanding of the uh, the phenomena observed in experiments, for example. Mm -hmm. So in experiments, we always have some particular type of uh, hyperparameters and the data, and you can observe some phenomena. So for theory, it's more general that um, if you can prove something that uh, for your method, it's basically holds for a broad class of data and uh, a class of methods. So as long as you know that your method and your data satisfy certain conditions, you know the theorem holds, and you know uh, the result will uh, follow as you decide. So, so you can, you know, in priori know um, how well you will uh, be like after uh, running this methods. And then, so I, I promise we'll get to, to less abstract stuff, but just while we're here, so yeah. When you go to, to prove these theorems, would you say that the theory that we're developing for deep learning is more similar to mathematics, where we can kind of uh, we can prove something, and then that's interesting in and of itself, or is it more similar to say physics, where you you could develop some theory, but then you ultimately have to test it against the real world, at least in this cartoon kind of setting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually a great question, and I think that's uh, distinguish like deep learning theory from more, um, uh, I'd say, traditional or classical uh, machine learning theory. So, uh, from my point of view, that um, more classical machine learning theory mostly follows from the more mathematical uh, trend. That you have a very concise uh, um, formulations and um, very um, standard kind of assumption, and then you derive an algorithm that probably works under these conditions. By works, I mean um, like you have a polynomial, like sample complex in terms of certain parameters that describes um, the problems. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so that's more or less the uh, style of traditional machine learning theory. But deep learning is uh, quite the uh, quite different. I would say it's more like physics, but we are trying to give them a more a rigorous um, uh, take. So uh, the start of deep learning theory is really from the empirical observations. Like, uh, although there are theory for deep learning, like uh, 20, 30 years ago about their approximation theory, but really recent theory are from uh, the observations, uh, empirical observations. So. Um, there's a very influential paper uh, called Understanding uh, Deep Learning Requires Rethinking uh, Generalization 
Basically, they did some very interesting experiment that um, uh, they, they test an, uh, a convolution neural network trained on some image data. And they found that even if you replace your uh, the labels in the data by some random labels, so, so now there's no even correlation between those image and these labels, mm -hmm. these uh, class labels. And then you still run, let's say, stochastic gradient descent on your neural network, then you can still achieve say, a zero uh, empirical error uh, or optimization error. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, you know, the neural network learn on this random label cannot generalize um, in contrast to if you use the uh, original labels. However, this um, is already very interesting because uh, from a especially from a theory point of view, because uh, in the classical machine learning theory, we often told that in, uh, in order to generalize, you need to restrict your uh, model class, like you have less uh, small number of parameters so that your model can generalize. Mm -hmm. But here, um, it's quite interesting because the number of parameters, because we know that um, basically for any kind of labels, you can feed the data. So basically you are using a very, very um, like rich um, model uh, in contrast to a classical machine learning model that you want to restrict your model class. Mm -hmm. However, uh, you can still generalize if you are given um, the good data, the true labels, although you cannot generalize if you are given some random labels. Mm -hmm. So this is a very interesting um, empirical observation, in con like, especially in contrast with the classical machine learning uh, theory or even statistical theory. Um, so deep learning um, um, theory wants to first understand this kind of surprising phenomena observed in empirical observations. So mm -hmm. this is very close to um, you know how people do physics, like you have some empirical observations and then you develop some theory. Uh, usually at the beginning you can develop some uh, non-rigorous but high, very intuitive theory, like you can, you know, in terms of theory, you can ignore some higher order terms, do some approximation and to understand this phenomenon. So for deep learning, we are doing something similar that um, we are uh, trying to understand this behavior in the limit sense. Like for example, if takes certain uh, either the width or the depth goes to infinity, then we can understand these behaviors. It's very like physics. Like uh, for example, you have molecules and you consider the phenomena that for the infinite number of molecules, and then you consider say a density over molecules, and then you can have some um, uh, qualitative or quantitative uh, description of these dynamics. And mm -hmm. here it's kind of similar that we take the neural number of neurons goes to infinity, then we can have some very precise uh, description of this phenomenon. Yeah. So this is very different from um, you know classical machine learning theory where you have a very you first have a good uh, problem definition and then you design your algorithm. But here basically the, the algorithm is fixed. It's just you know um, stochastic gradient descent, and your problem is fixed. Like you have a uh, fixed, um, uh, say, uh, loss function and the data is there, but the phenomena is that you don't prove, you don't design the algorithm to solve this problem. Your algorithm is there, you just want to understand why this algorithm works. So it's more close to, uh, clo like closer to physics, I would say. Yeah, yeah. But afterwards, we all still want to, you know, prove uh, very rigorous mathematical theorem so that, um, I mean, though that is like rigorous, and so you know that you are confident that your theorem is correct and can be applied to a broader setting instead of just like um, intuitively understand the, the phenomena there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. That there's a mix, almost of both things. That the empirical observations kind of give you a starting point or restrict the 
the class of things that you're looking at, but then it still has this level of mathematical rigor where you're actually trying to formally prove it. Yeah. Right. Right. So yeah, I'm sure like we'll revisit ideas like this talking through your thesis, but let's talk about how you got to uh, working on the thesis. So your background. So what was your background leading into the PhD? How did you get interested in, in theory and how did you um, get interested in doing a PhD? Yeah, oh, that's an interesting question. So when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, I mean, at that time, many people want to study you know, computer science. And so did I, because, you know, computer science is a very hot um, field. And, you know, uh, if you go to work with the industry afterwards, you can get good compensations. Uh, so I had the same mindset at the time. Um, so I studied uh, like computer, uh, electrical engineering and computer science major at Berkeley. And, but I really uh, love math. I do mathematical computation during my high school. So I still want to learn more like pure math uh, during my undergrad. So I also had a double major in, in math. And then I did one internship in uh, like at Google and I found the pure software engineering work is not uh, as interesting as you know, proving some theorems. Uh, when, when at that time I was doing some uh, research assistant work on some linear algebra um, for some you know, numerical number for especially on some proofs. So uh, so kind of for machine learning series kind of makes you still need you still do like uh, very relevant work, I mean practically relevant work. But at the same time you uh, you need to prove theorems uh, and you still have the mathematical rigor and elegance there. So that's why I'm very interested in this machine learning theory. Um, yeah, so I just applied to PhD and got offer from CMU and then I went there. Uh, at the beginning, um, I was doing some like matrix related problems, uh, like matrix factorization, matrix completion, um, and different kind of uh, matrix decomposition problems. And there, uh, I mean, because matrix are pretty much the one of the most widely used form of storing data. So there are many problems related to matrix and there are many interesting uh, mathematical problems like how do you approximate this matrix and that's also related to uh, practical usage because uh, you do want to save or store your uh, data and or explore your data very efficiently. So at the time I was doing most uh, this matrix estimation, matrix decomposition problems. Um, and yeah, afterwards, um, so I, I did some internship. Uh, my, my first internship was at uh, Microsoft Research at Redmond, where I studied, uh, we basically applied some optimization technique to a reinforcement learning problem. So it's totally different from what I uh, did at, uh, at CMU. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned optimization and reinforcement learning at the time. So it's very good experience. Um, so afterwards, I'm very interested in optimization because I think um, this optimization is not only um, like mathematically elegant, it's also if you design some new algorithm and it really has a better theoretical result, um, pretty much you have confidence that it can also improve the practical uh, performance as well. Mm-hmm. Unlike some other type of certain problems, usually you need to make some stronger assumptions, then you can have better results. For, but for optimization, it's kind of, if you prove some stronger uh, theorem, usually can lead to um, a, like practical improvement as well. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm really I really like optimization. So at that time I was um, then I switched my research focus to non-convex optimization, which is pretty uh, hot from like 2016 because you know neural networks is non-convex, so many people study non-convex optimization. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I did one project for non-convex optimization, which for solving a class of non-convex problems called uh, set of strict set of points problem, but unfortunately, I gave actually it's a counter example, like a lower bound for that problem. So I showed that gradient descent may take exponential time to find uh, some good um, local minimum. Um, so I found like this structure may not be the be the one that can expand uh, neural network. So we probably there are some other structures. Mm -hmm. And then um, in two thousand seventeen. I went to another internship at Facebook uh, AI Research um, at, uh, in Menlo Park. So there I worked with a researcher, uh, Yuan Zongtian, who has some uh, you know, theoretical work on deep learning. So at that time, that's basically my first time systematically start to research in deep learning. Uh, so we proved some convergence result of gradient descent for uh, some very simple new network, basically some one neuron neural network. Uh, if you call it a neural network, um, yeah. But at the time, I learned a lot from uh, like what is the structure of neural network and what can be um, uh, like analyzed there, and what are the open problems there as well. And pretty much from that time, I switched my research focus to from non-convex optimization uh, to or like to focus on the optimization of neural networks. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's uh, my follow-up works. Uh, uh, that's where my follow-up leads to. Um, yeah, so then I, you know, I read the paper by uh, that you know, rethink, uh, understanding generalization requires or understanding deep learning requires rethinking generalization paper. I found that's very interesting because it shows that basically you don't need any assumption on the data. So and then the the phenomenon is already there. Like usually in the previous uh, theoretical work about deep learning optimization, that you often need to make strong assumption about your how data is generated. One like kind of ridiculous assumption is that you assume um, the data is from a Gaussian distribution with identity covariance, and the y's uh, are really a a, a neural generated according to a neural network. So that's a ridiculous strong assumption, but you know because. Deep learning uh, theory is so hard, so people will start from this kind of strong assumptions, and uh, hopefully in the future you can speak, uh, you know, have some result on the more general conditions. But even that, on that assumption, people can very only prove some, you know, kind of uh, very um, simple results. Uh, but after reading the paper of this uh, generalization paper and their experiments, I found it's possible actually to make basically no assumption. Then you can still prove something quite surprising that uh, just running gradient descent on a very big neural network, you can achieve, say, zero optimization error. Hmm. Um, yeah, so then I, at that time, there are many people, I think, studying this problem. Um, there are some insight from different groups. Um, for example, uh, there's one paper that's is particular uh, insightful is by Yuan Zhili and Ying Yu Liang. They proved that um, for uh, if you use cross entropy uh, laws and also your data have some certain cluster uh, structure, then basically running gradient descent. And if your neural network is very, very wide, 
um, then you can still, uh, you run in gradient set, you can achieve zero optimization or also generalization error. Um, so one of the key insights is that if your neural networks are wide, then basically every neuron only moves a little bit so that you can feed all the data. Uh, so that basically comes to my first important result in this area, I would say. It's about gradient descent for uh, solving a wide gradient descent can uh, overpower try neural network. Using gradient descent, you can optimize uh, to zero optimization error. Uh, so basically, we use their insight that uh, you know every neuron moves a little bit, and then we found there's certain invariance under this condition that there's a kernel matrix or a gram matrix that basically moves a little bit. Um, it's like the kernel matrix you learn in machine learning class, but it's just a different kernel, and that's pretty much a fixed matrix. And under this condition, um, uh, you can uh, and uh, if this kernel is, uh, is a full rank, then it's pretty uh, very easy to show that gradient descent can find the global minimum, which is a zero optimization error solution. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that's basically how I get um, the first important result. And then I, I did um, several follow-up works, extending that to deep neural networks, and uh, you know we can also prove some generalization guarantees on top of that. So that's pretty much how I my roadmap to from uh, undergrads to uh, you know studying the deep neural networks. I see. So these different internships that you mentioned, this was before you started the PhD. Oh uh, no, it's during my PhD. So, okay, during, uh, okay. I mean, the first internship at Google was, was when I was an undergrad, but that's a pure software engineering one. But uh, I basically during my PhD every summer I've been taught to do some internship. So then. Uh, yeah, the title of your thesis is Gradient Descent for Non-Convex Problems in Modern Machine Learning. Yeah. So you'd mentioned that I think during undergrad, you had worked on this non-convex optimization a bit or encountered it. Uh, no, on, in, during undergrad, I mostly worked on some numerical linear algebra, some okay. matrix problems. Uh, well, that's also related to the uh, theoretical fun like. Uh, the techniques of those linear algebra problems is very useful for optimization in general. So um, it's, um, I'm glad that I had that experience. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, so before you had done all this work in the thesis, where was the idea of non-convex optimization and doing theory with it? It seems like it's almost like one of these really, you know, intractable problems to make progress on it. Or was it kind of you saw open problems that were tractable to start working on? Yeah, so I, I'm for me, I'm always interested in some kind of new problem instead of uh, you know improving the existing classical problems. So non-convex problem, I mean, in general, of course, is like an NP-hard problem. But uh, empirically, we have seen that uh, you know, so classical design can solve you know, new network optimization very successfully. Mm -hmm. So I think we can identify certain structure um, in the you know problem so that which makes your optimization even if it's non-convex easier. So that's pretty it's a pretty open problem, but I, I kind of like this kind of open problem because it's like it's like a brand new field and you can make your like first set of contributions to this field. That will be uh, very uh, interesting to me. So. Yeah, and at the time, actually, it's not from scratch. You know, we're not doing research from scratch on non-convex optimization. There are some previous results about uh, what they call like strict saddle points kind of 
um, structure. Um, that's where I started. So at the beginning, I'm not like, you know, start from uh, from scratch. I'm still following others' uh, existing structures. And we did some kind of um, a new analysis on uh, these kind of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, maybe if we could go to the section on the gradient descent for empirical risk minimization. So here you showed that a multi-layer neural network, um, when it's randomly initialized with gradient descent, it could find a global minimum of this empirical risk. Yeah. Uh, and you noted in your thesis that it was quite surprising. So if you could think back to starting to work on this project and kind of what did you expect the result to be? Yeah, so, you know, the ideas change every day. So at the mm-hmm. beginning, um, it's not like no hope during, like when I would say during the third year, because we saw a lot of empirical success, especially the paper I mentioned before, like understanding deep learning paper. Um, but theoretically, you know, in general, people say uh, non-complex problem is going be hard. That's pretty much people's view on non-complex formation. But it's, there's quite a big... Uh, gap between theory and uh, empirical observations. Mm-hmm. So, but in terms of theory, the, the hardest part is that there's no um, framework or you don't know where to start. Uh, unlike existing optimization problems, usually people study convex optimization and it improves is like say convergence rate, but basically, but you still have something to start. Like you assume the problem is convex, but here you don't know what is the assumption you can make. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, basically, start from um, you know looking at those empirical papers that you know people observe that you need to make your neural network very very large, either in depth or or in um, in width. Uh, so we just try. Like we also run some experiments on this large neural network to see what is the behavior. Um, yeah, then we found that you know running gradient sun, you still if you, the neural networks are wide. Um, then you basically have a very um, similar convergence behavior, just like a convex problems. So we think there might be something like invariant there that make the behavior of neural network very similar to that of the um, uh, like convex problems. Mm. Uh, and then we found that uh, kernel. Of course, we build like our work built on upon other works as well. But after we find this kernel, that's um, then the, all the proofs just follow. It's very, uh, well, there, it involves many calculations, but the idea is very simple. Just you know, proving that kernel is invariant during the uh, training process and then the convergence just follows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite surprising at the beginning because um, you know, non-complex problem in general is simply hard and there's no framework um, to study it. Uh, but it's not surprising in the sense that empirically we find uh, you know, stochastic gradient descent very successful. So yeah, so we just make, you know, make the bridge to try you know, bridging this to the theory and the practice. I see. So it sounds like a mix of, because I'm always curious where the kind of theoretical questions come from, and then how you can be confident enough to start investigating it. Because like when you read the argument at the end, it's like this very this very nice logical argument, and it starts with like this Gram matrix, and then arguing that it's closer at the end of it's close to the beginning point 
after training and so on. Um, and it sounds like it's a mix of you're running experiments. There was maybe some existing work that gave a hint that this kind of gram matrix thing was useful theoretically. And you can kind of begin to construct the, the theory from that. Right, right. Um, I mean, I don't have, uh, I didn't have the confidence as well, like during at the beginning. Uh, it's kind of also a luck that, you know, building upon previous work and combining with our experiments, we just realized that this kernel doesn't change. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, like we have some concurrent work, like the neurotendon kernel paper. Um, like we didn't know that paper when we write our paper, but later we found that basically we are saying the same thing that is neurotendon kernel. Mm -hmm. And our, so, I mean, at that time I would say, because we have, there are like previous work and there are empirical work. So, you know, at that time point, there definitely someone, there will be, there would be someone who will like discover, you know, this kind of phenomenon, gram matrix. It just happened, you know, at the time it was me and some other groups that, you know, at the front of these lines. So we discover this phenomenon. Um, yeah, I mean, it's also, um, a, it was also a good luck uh, at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, then there's a few there's a few things I wanted to ask about. So one is you mentioned this connection or similarity with the neural tangent kernel. And yeah. I would say that, you know, some things from theory land kind of propagate up to the wider machine learning community. And it seems like this neural tangent kernel is one of them. I mean, just loosely speaking, how how big of a deal is this in the theory community? Do you see a lot of theory being focused around these ideas now? Yeah, um, there are many theories. I think uh, many people view this is one of the kind of breakthrough in recent years, mm -hmm. um, because um, it's very different from uh, a traditional machine learning theory. This is really coming from empirical observation and people, and then people derive very clean theory um, from these empirical observations. And the nice thing about this theory is that it's first, it's very clean, and secondly, it's very easy to understand. Uh, it's pretty much just like a linear models, but in the kernel space. Uh, and because we learned the kernel method in the machine learning class, so it's right for most machine learning researchers, it's very easy to understand as well. And also it's very, um, you know, it's uh, connected to neural networks in, it's equivalent to neural network in the certain limit. So it has strong motivation to really develop the uh, the full theory about neural network kernel. So it's, um, you know, many people um, uh, study it, and there are many theory around it. Uh, so you can see, for example, the for example, the citation counts of that neurotendon kernel paper is like rising <laughs> in recent years. So you know, so people, I think, in both theory and uh, in general machine learning or even particularly like this theory because also because of the connection with neural network, and um, there are you know, for example, using. Uh, neurotendon kernel to do neural architecture search uh, because kernel you only need to you can still compute the kernel using a small number of data so you can shed light on the architecture of a particular uh, the effectiveness of the architecture um, you can use it use it like a, its corresponding kernel as a uh, proxy to uh, understand that architecture so yeah, so generally neurotendon kernel is really coming from Siri, but it's branching out to many domains right now. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, maybe if a listener was interested in, I don't know, setting aside some time to say what's something that's going on in the theory world, maybe looking into this neural tangent kernel, just getting a sense of what it is might be a good example. Right, right. I think to study, uh, like, if you want to understand neural network theory, um, neural tangent kernel is definitely one of the topics you you need to learn, and that may be a starting point. Although um, our current understanding is that neural tangent kernel may not fully uh, represent neural networks in many ways, uh, because you require, you know, there are very many conditions um, that are to make the neural tangent kernel is equivalent to neural networks, like the uh, infinitely wide neural network in, in the base to be infinitely wide. Um, um, the learning rate needs to be very, very small, basically closer to zero. And um, the initialization is not a standard initialization um, magnitude. So there are several stringent conditions to enable this equivalence. Um, but it's kind of like a baseline for neural network theory. If you want to say, say new, you have a new theory for neural network, you should at least beat the neural tangent kernel in certain ways. Um, yeah, but there are, it's a, I mean, good starting point. One idea that comes up a lot reading through the thesis is over-parameterization. Yeah. And I would say, um, just like zooming out, when you hear over-parameterization, it sounds like something negative, that it could maybe lead to overfitting or something like this. Right, right. Uh, but from what I understand, this is kind of key to the argument that you're using, and so it's kind of beneficial. So, do you think? How do you think about this concept? Do you think of it as being something problematic, or is it something that actually like unlocks something new for these deep neural networks? The overparameterization. I think it's the latter. Um, it's something that's very important to make new network work in. Um, recent application or it's modern applications. Um, because, you know, you know, like my traditional machine learning like course uh, teaches us that we need to restrict our model class to not like now you need to find the right model class. Uh, just um, you know exactly better have exact the you know number of parameters that can represent your uh, for example function you want to learn. However, this is problematic um, in terms of, um, I would say, optimization, especially. Like, although you can find some, fun although you're, say, some function you want to learn, it's very simple. But if you only parameterize your uh, function in this way, the optimization problem is very, very hard. Um, there are, actually, there's some simple examples showing, for example, your, neural net your target function is a neural network, and then you use the same uh, architecture for the neural network to learn this neural network, but then even if we run gradient descent, many times with like overwhelming probability in, in terms of random initialization, you will stuck at some local minimum that is uh, suboptimal. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you do, uh, but here we can use overparameterization, which really help uh, optimization. As you just use a slightly larger neural network, you can um, like basically escape. Uh, from the so-called minimum, and then you can find the global minimum, which corresponds to the desired, uh, let's say, target function you want to find. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a basically a different mindset. Usually, in the traditional machine learning uh, course, we uh, teach generalization optimization separately. Like, suppose you can find 
um, say the global minimum of a certain optimization problem, then we understand this solution uh, using some statistical theory to understand this um, solution. Okay, but now really the optimization and the uh, uh, generalization are coupled together because in order to really find um, the good solution or the empirical, you find the minimum of the empirical risk, you need to modify your model to help optimization. So over-parameterization is one way to help it. There are many actually among other ways, like people call it re-parameterization or some other names. But basically, we do something in on the model to help optimization. But this also leads to some new problems, especially theoretical problem in terms of generalization. Um, so I would say it's over-parameterization opens a new raw to oh, machine learning, like maybe in the uh, future machine learning courses will not teach like, you know, this overfitting uh, in the current way we teach it. Um, and, you know, because we have new understanding in terms of optimization and uh, or other type of techniques that help optimization. I see. And then another thing that was interesting to me is that the arguments and the theory here, it's developed for gradient descent and not uh, right, stochastic gradient descent, or these different variants that we use. So, how do you think about the gap between, or is there a gap between those things, between gradient descent, stochastic, and these variants? And how problematic do you sense that that is for theory? Yeah, that's a good question. So, in terms of theory, we always first want to understand the most basic uh, setting that we can do theory. That's why uh, in my first, let's say, important paper, we study just two-layer or punctual network and we train using gradient descent. Mm -hmm. um, actually, we even make it simpler that we study the gradient flow, which corresponds to gradient descent with the learning rate goes to zero. So you can, for that, you can really use a continuous ordinary differential equation to understand the whole dynamics, which is you know even simpler for analysis. Mm. Um, yeah, so. After we have this first uh, result, definitely we want to extend it as much as possible. Uh, you know, to deep layer, uh, to deeper neural networks is not very hard. But extending to uh, so classical descent or even you know, fancier algorithm like Adagrad or Adam, that's kind of tricky because it really depends on which regime you are in. So the kind of theory can support you know the learning rate to be very small. So if your learning rate is very small, then uh, basically, the same theory applies to stochastic gradient descent or other algorithm as well. Um, but um, basically, it's still within this kernel regime. Um, so you don't see why it can lead to better generalization um, result. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, empirically, we found that um, stochastic gradient descent, especially you tune the learning rate according to some schedule, uh, then it not only like uh, help optimization, like can give you better convergence uh, rate, it can also help generalization. So that's kind of mysterious. So I don't think current theory can, any of the current theory can explain why large learning rate or this kind of learning rate scattering can really help. Uh, there are some attempts, um, but I don't think there's a unified, very clean theory to understand why this um, current use of stochastic incentive help generalization. Yeah, so there's a still a gap there. Yeah, yeah, I see. And then, yeah, so the gradient flow was another thing that was interesting. So you said that it's kind of simpler to work with that 
to start, and then uh, you actually have to translate it to the discrete step uh, gradient descent. Yeah. Yeah, so this was a really nice section. I enjoyed reading through it. There's this auto-balancing idea as well, which was oh, pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, so studying the gradient flow is kind of an um, important tool for uh, theoreticians, uh, especially recent development. Because, you know, traditionally, especially in convex optimization, we care about, because the framework is there, so we really care about convergence rate. So usually people don't study um, the continuous version of the gradient descent or any of the dynamics induced by the algorithms. Mm -hmm. Because eventually you will need to tune your, say, uh, learning rate so that you have to, uh, so that you have a good uh, convergence rate, which hopefully you can improve the previous result. That's usually how this uh, convex optimization develop. But here for non-convex optimization, we don't have even a framework to understand why it works or not. So we can start, we can ignore the convergence rate uh, or number of steps you can converge to an optimal solution for now. We just want to have a description of the dynamics of the, uh, for example, dynamics induced by gradient descent. Mm -hmm. So to describe this process, actually the natural tool is this gradient flow or the ordinary differential equation. Because if you have this great version, uh, you will also have, I mean, in terms of analysis, you always have more terms in the equations, which makes your um, you know, analysis uh, messier. Uh, so you do want to have a very clean like equation to work with. So that's why we first work with this continuous version. Um, so yeah, so uh, in my auto-balancing paper, we also use the same idea that we first study this gradient flow, um, and then we extend to gradient descent. And I would say, uh, like recently, even in convex optimization, people uh, started to use uh, like this continuous point of view to study different algorithms. Um, so there's a kind of famous paper by uh, Vijay Su et al. They study um, using continuous uh, basically ordinary differential equation to model the dynamics of natural uh, acceleration method in convex optimization. So they find there's some, uh, this particular ordinary differential equation has some particular uh, properties that help you accelerate. And then they give a very different proof uh, from the original proof for the natural acceleration. And I think nowadays people, um, kind of believe that you should, and for understanding certain phenomena, you should first take the uh, continuous version to begin with. Let's make the whole uh, analysis, and it's, I mean, it's more insightful, or I mean, easier to get some insight from these simpler equations. Yeah, so then the next major section was about uh, recovering these convolutional neural networks. And here it seems like the key difference was that you were no longer just looking into optimization but worrying about generalization. Right. From a theory perspective, uh, what are the differences here? And then how do you begin to uh, get a grasp on proving things that involve generalization? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, deep learning involves uh, both optimization and generalization. So, of course, we are interested in uh, generalization as well. So, to me, I... So I read, you know, many empirical papers and I found that most of the successful applications is not about using fully connected network, but instead of using some more uh, like other convolutional network conservation or RNs for NLP. 
So one of the natural questions study is uh, why uh, convolution neural network give you better performance. Um, and mostly this better performance is in terms of the generalization. Like for example, on image general CIFAR, you can have a smaller um, generalization error. And because you know, for training error, both of them are pretty much just zero, but uh, for convolution neural networks, the generation error is much smaller. Um, so again, we study the the most, uh, I mean, the simplest model we can think of, which is uh, like a linear uh, convolutional neural network. You can call it linear, or you can also call it a linear. Uh, you can also you can call it neural network, or can also call it like a uh, a linear model with certain convolutional structures. So basically, we want to study why convolution operation is so uh, helpful to in terms of the generalization. Um, in this setting, you do need to make some you need to need to make some assumption about the data. Otherwise, you can very easily construct certain uh, data that fully connected neural networks is better than the convolution neural networks. But we want to study when the convolution networks better than the fully connected neural network. Um, so this is. So my work studies why um, and the what kind of assumptions convolutional networks, this linear convolutional networks, can be better than the fully connected neural network. Uh, so this we really take a more kind of classical statistical uh, uh, way to study it. So we make the assumption that uh, the true function you want to learn is a convolutional network. Then under the setting, whether we can, you know, because fully connected neural networks always a uh, is a superset of convolution neural networks. You can always express the convolution neural network as a fully connected neural network because uh, you can just tune your your ways in certain ways. Um, but we can want to say that if some underlying uh, function you want to learn have certain convolution structure, then you should use the convolution neural network to learn it in order to achieve better uh, statistical efficiencies. Uh, so there we have a paper called like so how many samples are needed to estimate a convolution network. So we use some kind of statistical tools like empirical uh, process theory to quantize the sample complexity of the convolutional uh, learning convolution neural network. And yeah, so we can see that um, in certain settings there's a uh, again in terms of sample complexity of the convolution neural network in in contrast to uh, the fully connected neural network. Um, but yeah, I think generally, I don't even for now. I don't think uh, there are very few papers actually rigorous prove that one architecture is better than the other. I think that's um, something we are not very, uh, not uh, well understood. Um, like what kind of fundamental data structure or data uh, properties uh, that enable one architecture is better than the other. Like we have some intuition, for example, you know, convolution like images have locality, some rotation or uh, translation invariance, those kind of things. Uh, but there's, I don't think there's a work that really formally show that you know how this property can first rigorously defines properties of the data and how the convolution neural network can exploit these properties and then uh, you can prove that this convolution neural network gives you better efficiency. So our work is kind of a uh, very simplified uh, setting, uh, but going beyond that's pretty hard because you need to consider what are the fundamental um, structure of the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then here you considered if the input was just Gaussian, and I think yeah. that let you derive some things analytically, and then you went the yeah. next step and assumed just more general input, 
And so it was, right. I, I don't know if I could articulate all the details, but it was just interesting to see as you go to the more complex setting, it seems like the theory was quickly getting more difficult. And so you could kind of see this in action that as we go to these more difficult settings, it becomes, uh, I guess, maybe more difficult to uh, develop the theory. Yeah, that's usually the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's how every theory is developed right, right. in math or physics. Yeah. Well, you, just a step, we've been going into the details, just a, a maybe a higher level, level question. What do you think for you is the most challenging or difficult part of doing a project like this? Is it kind of figuring out what question to ask? Is it formalizing the question? Is it actually writing the proof when it gets to that stage? Um, I mean, different products have different difficulties. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most deep learning products I did is about formalizing the problem or find the right um, formulation to study. Like, I mean, for example, uh, I would say three years ago, nobody has uh, thought about like studying this Oropan trineural network using small learning rate, gradient descent, and this particular initialization scheme, which is, I mean, the NTK uh, scheme. Um, so no one has studied, like, thought about like you can really prove something under this set of assumptions. Although this assumption in retrospect is kind of natural, but at that time people just you know don't think you can prove something under this kind of assumptions because it's still a non-convex problem. Um, so I think for uh for me the most difficult thing is to find the right uh formulation of the problems. Usually after finding the correct formulation, the proof. It's quite uh, intuitive, like you really involve certain calculations of linear algebra or like calculus, but um, usually it can go through. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, yeah, it's really the most difficult part to find the correct formulation of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. That like, it's almost like the the problem of coming up with a formalized version of the problem causes you right, to think about right. it so much that you almost know that the proof is going to go through. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's different from uh, other type of theory, like, for example, theoretical computer science or um, previous machine learning theory. Usually there you have a clean uh, formulation. You know the problem is there. Mm-hmm. You just want to find a better algorithm to solve it, like better uh, in terms of computation complexity or sample complexity. But here, really, the difficult part is that you don't know what is the right problem to study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. And then um, another question I had is like, as you're when you typically read these theory papers, um, what's kind of your workflow for reading them? In the sense that, like, do you always read the proofs? Uh, do you find that like most of the insight comes from understanding the proof, or um, is it only like when you're really maybe working with a method that you go down to that level? Yeah, what's kind of your your workflow for reading a new theory paper? Yeah, it depends. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, depends on the uh, why I choose to read this paper. Some theory paper is about new formulations, so for that, I mostly just read the uh, how they formulate the problem, what is the problem. And I will uh, think about whether the formulation makes sense or not. Um, some other paper instead is about proof technique. 
Um, for that part, but usually they will make the point clear in the abstract or intro that this paper is about a new problem or uh, something uh, new in the proof technique. Um, if I read the paper that is about proof technique, I will, and because I I choose to read it, I usually I, I, want, I really want to learn the technique there. So for those paper, I will uh, read the proof uh, in detail. Yeah, there was this. I remember reading just in in pure math there was a recommendation i think it was from one of these like classic um, math textbooks that you should spend an hour per page going through and that doesn't it doesn't necessarily scale but i guess you're saying that like um sometimes you actually do spend that amount of time and other times you just go for kind of um well even for uh Proof, like a technique paper. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the proof technique is used to solve some problems. Usually, uh, you know, first, you know, to write a formal proof, it takes uh, you know many pages. Yeah, yeah. But the key inside is usually within one or two or maybe three pages. Mm -hmm. So, and the other part are mostly standard calculations. So, if you are really in this field, the other part are quite standard. Uh, to you, then you don't need to read it those in detail. Then you only need to read the key insight or the key techniques from the paper, which usually is pretty short, like within three or five pages, I would say. So it's I don't think it will take you a lot of time to read one paper. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. At the beginning, I think if you are new in the field, you do need to spend uh, quite a time to. Uh, to read every line, line by line, so that you can get familiar with the you know kind of standard techniques in the field. So you can later you probably can develop some new ideas there. Right, I see. So in some sense, then, not to get too philosophical, but then part of processing the paper of mathematical reasoning is pattern matching. That you've seen these techniques before. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Now go faster. It's basically like you saw this kind of similar techniques many times. It's become like a, like a kind of black box. You know the input and output. Okay, I saw mm -hmm. this kind of pattern. Then I know. Okay, they just proved this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, it's pretty. I think it's kind of the intuition there is similar to other fields as well. Like you have some um, packaging. Uh, you you already package some part of the ideas in your mind. So. If you, you encounter um, this kind of um, this uh, kind of arguments again, then you will quickly recognize that. Yeah, and then maybe we could briefly touch on um, this one other part of the thesis about failures of gradient descent. So here, I guess the kind of problem was to construct examples on which uh, this gradient descent will fail, right? And this is another area where I was wondering, like. Was this kind of what you expected going into the project that you'd be able to construct these, and then was it surprising? Uh, I would say it's surprising. So <laughs> this is what I did during my third year uh, when I was third year PhD. Uh, at the time, I was studying this uh, strict saddle um, uh, structure in non-convex optimization. So there are positive results. So one positive result is by Jason Lee et al. They show that asymptotically, like gradient descent can find. Uh, local minimum, uh, but there's no convergence rate. Another result is by uh, like Chi Jin et al. They show that if you add some noise in the gradient descent, 
uh, I mean, it is uh, like more or less uh, isotropic noise, so that you have noise in all directions. Then you can find the near optimal solution in polynomial time. So actually, it's very natural to study whether the vanilla gradient with, without any modification, uh, you can find a uh, local minima in polynomial time. And you know, this is actually consistent with all the uh, simulations or just typical examples for this framework. So this framework encounter, uh, like incorporates like matrix factorization with many matrix and tensor problems. And for those problems, you can run simulations, you can run experiments. You find that running gradient descent, uh, vanilla gradient descent, you can find your optimal solution in say polynomial time. Uh, so yeah, at the beginning, I just want to prove this phenomenon without, I mean, for Bragg-Vincent, I mean, without adding any noise there. So I just want to prove that this vanilla gradient can find a near-optimal solution in polynomial time. But I dig into the proof, there are always some, you know, some terms I cannot deal with. And these terms actually help me to construct the counterexample. So it's kind of surprising to the, I would say to the community that because previous, um, prior to my result, all results are positive, like, you know, either polynomial time or asymptotic convergence. So pretty, people are pretty optimistic about, you know, gradient descent, which is one, which is just random utilization, you can find a global minimum or like a minimum in polynomial time. But uh, when I was digging the proof there, I found there's some terms that can uh, always, always appear and the term can uh, like make me uh, not able to prove the polynomial time convergence. So based on that term, I constructed a certain kind of weird function, which made gradient descent really take exponential time to converge. Yeah, 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 that's really interesting. So do you keep kind of a, a high level intuition now in your mind after doing this, that there might be these really pathological cases with the gradient descent that we use in practice? Or do you kind of view this as as separate from what we might use in practice? Like what's your... Oh yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, I'm still actually um, doing some related work on this direction. So I think the example I constructed um, was kind of pathological. It's like a you know paper we call it like octopus kind of function. It's really yeah yeah. It's really it's like an octopus. Uh, but you know, as I said, for most problems, uh, if you run simulations or you run real experiments, you know you don't need to add any noise to uh, escape from set of points, just running gradient descent, it just works. So that means that there still exists some certain structures of the problem that uh, help gradient descent just work. Uh, but we don't understand what the structure there is. So yeah, we're trying to identify certain structures there so that enable, you know, uh, under which we can prove that um, like standard gradient descent can uh, just find the global minimum. And then um, hopefully, based on this insight, we can develop faster algorithm to solve those optimization problems. Well, yeah, I have to say this was really enjoyable to read. And going back to the thing about uh, you know the details of proofs versus the higher level ideas and so on, one thing I really liked about the thesis is that there's like multiple levels of summaries. So if someone wants, they oh. could like read the introduction and get some idea of what we're talking about and you can kind of step step up and down. So I really enjoyed reading it. And I think this is a good bridge to talk about what you're working on now. So you mentioned you're still working on some version of a continuation of, of this. Uh, what are some other research areas that you're interested in now? 
um, yeah, so for now, I'm mostly interested in the uh, still deep learning theory, so in and reinforcement theory. For deep learning theory, I'm more interested in the uh, uh, representation learning. So this part, we cannot understand that through the lens of neural tendon kernel, because neural tendon kernel basically is a fixed uh, feature map. But somehow we know in BERT or in, or in computer vision, uh, work that you can learn a representation that can be helpful for other tasks. This cannot be explained by neural tendon kernel. So we are trying to understand why, uh, you know, this pre why pre-training work, why pre-training can help you learn a uh, good representation. Mm -hmm. So under what kind of assumptions about the data uh, between the pre-training uh, data and the downstream task, like what are the condition or connection between like, two domains that enable uh, you can do this transfer learning or this representation learning. So that's one direction I'm very interested in. Another direction is um, reinforcement learning. So again, um, this uh, direction I learned started from my internship. So mainly with Microsoft research people. Uh, so in 2016, I did one internship at Redmond and 2018, I did one internship at uh, Microsoft New York City. Uh, so there's there's a group uh, mainly focusing on reinforced learning uh, from theory to applications. Um, yeah, so from there, you know, in reinforced learning, there are many open problems. Uh, even I would say it's linear reinforced learning, we don't have a good understanding yet uh, because we don't know what are the sufficient conditions that enable you to use even a linear function to uh, represent a good policy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so there are many open problems, and in recent, I would say, two years, there are many developments, and this is a fast-growing area as well. Uh, there are many historical problems, and those historical problems recently can also shed light on why a certain method in using practice work or not. Um, especially, for example, recently there are some uh, work understanding the exploration and off-policy learning, and uh, to show that why, you know, uh, what kind of data are good or not for you to learn a good policy from. And then, so if you were to view your research as kind of a graph and it could have multiple components, where would your PhD work be? W would this be somehow connected to the reinforcement learning work, even in some loose way? Or do you kind of view these as separate research directions that you're pursuing? Um, I would say they are... Uh, Kind of connected. So, the basic tools we use uh, for other uh, deep learning theory or the uh, reinforcement theory are still like statistical theory and or probability and some uh, linear algebra and some uh, like some uh, I would say dynamical analysis like ordinary differential equations. So these are the core uh, methodologies or analysis tools we'll use for for many uh, machine learning theory areas. Um, also, you know, recently we know deep reinforcement learning is very hot in practice. Uh, so we recently we're trying to develop some theory for deep reinforcement learning as well. Like what are the uh, conditions for neural networks so that it can represent the Q function, the policy, or uh, the model. So there are many uh, connections between these two fields as well. Uh-huh, I see. Thinking back, and this could just be in, in pure math, it could be in computer science, or it could be something in machine learning. Do you think that there's there's one piece of theory or something that you learned that had some kind of like memorable impact on the way you think? That's a great question, actually. 
Um, I would say this ordinary differential equation type linear uh, dynamical system, I learned, I would say first I learned in uh, my freshman year, like in the calculus class, and then, but I kept using it throughout my research uh, in optimization, in convex optimization, non-convex optimization in neural networks. And so it's quite powerful. And, um, but I don't think in current machine learning uh, theory course, people have studied or learned in a very systematic way. So I think that will be a important tool in the future as well, or even should be taught in the class. Maybe there's some people listening right now that are taking that class right now and see, it'll, <laughs> it'll pay off. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this has been great. And I'd like to end the thesis review with two questions. Um, so the first is speaking of optimization, if you could view your research career as a kind of optimization problem, um, during your PhD, what would you say was your objective function? Was it just about kind of exploring things that you were interested in? Was it about setting up career prospects? And then do you think that your objective function is different now? Um, I would say pretty much the same. I'm still doing the thing I'm mostly interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, at PhD time, I really want to understand why deep learning work. I'm now still interested in that, but now I have a broader interest. I'm also interested in reinforcement learning, but I'm always doing the, uh, thing that I'm most interested in. Uh, so I would say in this aspect, um, my objective function has not changed. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last question of the thesis review is, if you could think of one piece of advice to give to a new researcher, and it could be kind of a useful heuristic, or it could be some grand advice. I would say uh, just follow your heart and just do the thing that you are most interested in so that you have most passion about. And if you have passion, then you can spend more time uh, on it and you will not feel tired and you can get more progress there. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. So thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks.